What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom socks. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Lindsay Medford. Lindsay is a writer, activist, and sometimes disabled person with a rare chronic autoimmune disease. She's also the author of the recently released book, My Body and Other Crumbling Empires, Lessons for Healing in a World That is Sick. You can get connected with Lindsay and her work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Lindsay Metford with me, and Lindsay, uh, you are a writer, you're an activist, and uh, I love the the your like about the author part on Amazon where it says, sometimes disabled person with a rare <laughs> chronic autoimmune disease. Uh, and so it's a really interesting way to describe yourself, but Lindsay, who is Lindsay Metford to Lindsay Metford? <laughs> well, um, I have just moved back to East Tennessee where I went to college. And so I, and I grew up in North Georgia, not too far from here. So I've been really leaning into these parts of my identity that are connected to this place. My family has stayed here. And so I'm currently really steeped in and rediscovering and re 
integrating all the ways that the Southern Appalachians are part of who I am and my uh, family and my family's history. And also in ways that I have learned a lot more about since leaving here the mm. first time, how the history of this land is a part of me too. And so I'm sitting on Cherokee land and a, and a place that has in places and pockets sites of racial terror for others and uh, mm -hmm. racial terrorizers in in my family's past. So that's that's my context and yeah. who I am as an individual is being raised around here in white evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. I went to Christian mm -hmm. college here in Tennessee and um, since then uh, did a took a seminary degree and then about a year later was diagnosed with the autoimmune condition or found out re re-experienced my childhood autoimmune condition mm. um that kind of that i had almost forgotten about and kind of derailed all my ambitious plans so i am a writer and speaker and i live here with my husband and my dog and since you brought it up, I'm sometimes disabled <laughs> as my sort of condition is very unpredictable. Interesting, and yeah. it, uh, there's a lot of really interesting ways that chronic illness and disability intersect and how we're learning what a beautiful and complicated term disabled is. Yeah. So yeah, that's Wonderful. me. That's great. To, well, one of the things, uh, that you didn't mention right there, but I think I mentioned right at the beginning is that you're a writer and you have written mm -hmm. a couple other books that I've, I'm looking at, right? Am I, unless for whatever reason, your Amazon author page is completely wrong, but you have written a couple other books, correct? Yeah. Well, uh, a few of them are youth curriculum. On okay. The so they're page. a little different. A little bit. Yeah. With that said, though, you like it's not as if like this is the first piece of writing you've ever done. So, uh, you know, I'm sure <laughs> in the writing process, you you learn a lot about yourself. What was something that you learned about in the writing of uh, My Body and Other Crumbling Empires? What did you learn about yourself in writing this book in comparison to maybe some of the other pieces of writing that you've done in the past? Yeah, I did. While we're on the subject, I did learn that I am disabled. <laughs> it had, you know, I identified as chronically ill and mm -hmm. felt, you know, a little, I think just scared to to wander into an identity that I wasn't as familiar with what that meant to people or what the history of it was. And as I started to learn just a little bit about it and really ponder the direction that my life had taken since I'd gotten sick and mm -hmm. where I actually, what my social location really truly is, I, I realized that I am not able <laughs> to do a lot of things. And that this term encompasses a lot of ways that we can be excluded for what our bodies or our body minds, how we how they show up in the world. And so that became actually a whole little journey for me in the middle of, you know, you're riding on a deadline and then you're like, oh, I mm. <laughs> uh, I've been I've maybe been avoiding this truth about myself and about where where other people in particular see me 
in the matrix of society. And so that was a big thing. I, that, that was almost, I was, that was one of the biggest things really. The other thing is that I started out writing the book to be about all these things that are making us sick. And so our parts of our food system are Mm. making some of us sick. Our environmental policies, of course, are making people sick. Mm -hmm. Um, And it started out being about just like, we we gotta make all this better. And then as I was writing, it really became a book about how we go about making things better and what what how my experiences and my disabledness had intersected with my experiences in activism and in theological communities so there's kind of there ended up kind of being two layers to the book there where there's the mm-hmm. what and then the how and how those go together as well mm-hmm. no that's definitely apparent throughout the book and reading mm-hmm. it also in the book is a lot of theology. You've got some really great, wonderful theology in here. <laughs> and you're a, sem- you know, you're a former seminary student. So it's not like you ha- have never had to write like some sort of long the- theological paper or biblical exegesis right. or something, right? So you've done plenty of that. And obviously this is not like some sort of academic text, but I would imagine even for a book like this, you're still doing some level of research in the book. Was there anything in the research for this book that came up that you're like, wow, I didn't know that before. Maybe it was something about the American health system, or maybe it was something about theology. Maybe it was something about ecology. Uh, But was there something in the research of this book that you had no idea about before that you're like, I need to put that in this book? Oh man, I did a ton of research. I, yeah, I, about a lot of different things. And I'm definitely one of like a, a, a person who will just keep reading forever. And, and also a person that thinks everything is related. So <laughs> I always, when I get, when I embark on a research project, I always have to stop myself at some point. So I learned, I learned a good amount about how women are, experience the u.s healthcare system Mm. um and and of course how other identities intersect with the healthcare system in the real really startling statistical statistically clear and then um anecdotally horrifying ways Mm -hmm. and i don't have those statistics in front of me right now but i do i i think in there's a lot of people that want to talk about like what is it like spiritually to have a chronic illness and but there's also from a like strongly theological angle there's this entire justice piece of like having to interact with this system that's mm-hmm. really not made to not not really made for healing in a lot of cases mm. and I am becoming more aware as I continue to talk to people about this also that when I say that people think I like dislike or don't trust all doctors or something, (laughs) but I think our healthcare professionals are often really amazing people trying to do really amazing work within a broken system. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we have a lot of opportunities. Some of them are very small 
and simple ways to to make this system more uh, treating hum like a humans, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so, anyway, I learned a lot about that that I didn't always get to to include in the book. Um, I actually, I also read Rita Nakashima Brock's Journeys of the Heart. Uh, as I was finishing up the book and I was, uh, and I had started the book with this whole thing about what does it mean for Jesus to be in your heart? Mm. (laughs) And that tech, that book is just so beautiful. I, I really, you may be able to tell Mason from having read the book, but I deeply admire theologians who have been in the Academy and, but also are writing even a little bit accessibly and mm-hmm. um, that journeys my heart really is one of those books that I can confidently recommend to a friend that doesn't read theology, you know? Um, so I was so thrilled to learn about her Christology and to have some of her theological language for who Jesus is and how Jesus shows us how to be human. And that was a really also just like a very satisfying way as a writer to start to wrap up the book. Yeah. It's like, maybe Jesus doesn't live in our hearts because no one has any idea what that could possibly mean. But if Jesus is teaching us to live in this way of wholeness and in this way of, I'm trying to explain what by heart means to Brock living as whole people and in our, in, in our relationality in our communities uh, and fully alive within all the many relationships that make up who we are, as well as the relationships within ourselves that make up who we are. Mm-hmm. That could be, that could actually be a really fruitful way to come back around to this heart idea that is in the Bible. It is in our theology. And we, I, I've had a lot of, I've just struggled with a lot of, alongside a lot of other uh, evangelically raised people to to make any sense of this heart mm. idea. So I was I that's become a big influence on my theology and my theological language. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of that book or that author before. So I'll definitely have to check that out. I love that that really has shaped you and your theology. It's uh, I think the subtitle is a Christology of erotic power. Oh. Which is also very intriguing. So that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so obviously, the title of the book is called "My Body and Other Crumbling Empires," and so to some degree, your body frames this book, right? So, can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the story around your body or about your body that frames this book? Because I think for listeners that might be interested in checking out the book, to understand the story of your body is going to be really helpful in then, you know, understanding the rest of the book. Of course, yes. Well, I I start the book I almost near the beginning. I'm talking about my college experience where we started talking about this idea of incarnation Mm. that Mm -hmm. had really been sort of secondary or like just a Christmas message in all the churches where I had grown up and really exploring in these theology classes that we have in Christian undergrad 
<laughs> um, what it means for for God to choose a human body mm. and what that might mean about how God relates to the universe. And I'm like, this is a really fundamental thread in the entire history of Christian theology, um, but not something that I or most of my classmates had thought much about or encountered very much. And so the upshot of that was that I was really like really enamored of bodies by the time I got out of college and by the materiality of the world and really um, connected to my body in a different way than I had been as a repressed child. And not that I'm not, you know, anyway, (laughs) Um, (laughs) having reconnected in college with both my physical body, even my emotions in a new way. And so I had had this magical like few years where this climbing mountains and climbing rocks and doing yoga felt like places I really met God and places I really uh, fulfilled a vocation into being a human with a body. And then I got sick and I was 26 and I was suddenly back in this space that I had been in as, you know, like a seven or eight year old the Mm. first time I got sick, which was like, this is, this body has suddenly become a terrible place to be. Mm. (laughs) And so I really struggled to square these two ideas that I, that both felt true to me that God loves human bodies and God even reveals God's self to us in some way through our physical experiences of the world. And my physical experience of the world was really incredibly limiting and painful and isolating and and at the same time my you know the another piece of this narrative was that my doctors were telling me that my body was attacking itself Mm. and so I had this belief that my body was good and then my doctors came in and were like actually your body is attacking itself it's really not very smart and doesn't like you (laughs) and I didn't really know how to how to live Mm. with that and there are bodies that that they're just it's just painful to be in in those bodies um bodies that cannot be fixed or healed very well or i i don't want to discount the experience and the truth that bodies degenerate and fall apart bodies are born with problems that don't have to mean anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to say. However, I also learned that my body was not merely attacking itself. It was the autoimmune, the immune system is this like incredibly complex network of cells and it's, 
interspersed with all these other systems in maybe a different way than we might think of like the circulatory system is kind of a closed system. The auto, the immune system is just like your whole body. It's your gut and your lungs and your skin. And it's, you can't like, you can't separate it out in the same way, which like is also true of all our other systems, but like the way we learn science is to take it all apart. Right. Mm -hmm. And the immune system is just really hard to do. And that's one reason we don't have very many immune system doctors because Mm. it's just not very convenient (laughs) to study or to isolate from all the other systems. It's like, well, go talk to your pulmonologist about your lungs. It's like uh, all connected. The immune, my immune system was doing what it was supposed to do, but there's all these different, I'm waving my hands around. There's all these different inputs to how it operates and, and what it's trying to regulate and where, how it's trying to interface with everything coming in and out of the body all the time. And my immune system was just really overloaded with stressors that it it had no way of handling other than to just continue to ramp things up. Mm-hmm. And so when I started when I started to learn this, I was like, there's a lot of ways we could talk about this besides my body is attacking itself. When climate change causes hurricanes to spiral bigger bigger and bigger and hotter and hotter and more dangerous and more unpredictable, we don't really say that the earth is attacking itself. We understand that this system is running out of con- out of control or out of predictability, but not because the system is actually wrong. It's everything that Mm. around the system (laughs) um and so this story is getting really long but (laughs) i started to see my body as a as i started to understand that stress and uh in my particular body gluten and alcohol and even loneliness and isolation, Mm. these are all inputs to my body that directly cause inflammation. And there's scientific reasons, papers I can point you to that say this. And then there's my experience that I, by trial and error, have learned these things. I started to see my body both as this prophet of like how our systems are keeping us from literally functioning as human beings. And then as time went on, also how our our understanding of how we think we're going to fix all these problems that we have is not really adequate to the truth of what the thing is. In the same way that it wasn't personally helpful to me to think of my body as attacking itself and then try to like basically weaken my body so it couldn't attack itself as well. was understanding how the system was much more complicated than that both gave me like a truer picture of what was going on and it gave me like 
a much stronger sense of agency in how how I could go about living within this system, even if I could not like fully alter it or quote unquote fix it. I could participate in this thing. And I the more I live with my body and the more I observe this in the world, I do think there I have a strong theological sense that God made things this way. When we talk about the world being full of interrelationship and interdependency, and when we talk about community or community or our sort of society as being integral to constituting us as human beings and our ecosystem even as as part of who we are and how we encounter God, we're talking about these really complex systems. And sometimes we're trying to use super inadequate metaphors for to try and get our heads around something we actually can't fully understand, but we don't have to fully understand in order to participate meaningfully. It makes sense. And also, it's just really interesting, like how much like as you have like the story about your body, you end up learning about all these other things that are like, oh, they've got all these other inputs. And then you end up, you know, having some of these like metaphors that help you to understand your body a little bit more. Um, One of the things I found really interesting about the book was not only did you talk about your relationship to your body and the story of your body early on in the book, you know, especially during those like college years. But one of the other things you talk about really early on is sin. And I would imagine a lot of my listeners have this visceral reaction when they hear the word sin. And you also growing up evangelical, I'm sure there's a particular understanding that you had growing up about sin. Uh, But it's interesting that you bring up sin really early on in the book and talk about sin uh, early early on in the book. So can you talk about uh, what you believe sin is and why you thought it was important to talk about that early on in the book to, again, kind of bring all of this in frame. Yeah. So can you talk about what you believe sin is and why you believe, like why you brought it up really early on in the book? The stories I didn't, you know, have space to tell that also were really crucial to this whole larger story are the stories of um, spending time in a youth drop-in center for um, poor teenagers working in a food pantry and having breakfast with like a lot of homeless folks and being friends uh, over meals in, in a, you know, basement, spending time with people who, uh, who (laughs) experience the brokenness of all of these systems that I'm trying to point out are in from my own, in my own, They've experienced, they've struggled with these things a lot more than me. They, they're these, they're the, they're the one we talk about people who are vulnerable. You know, they're, they're, I have a really hard time. What I'm trying to say is I have a really hard time when people don't want to talk about sin because it sounds like, well, what else are we, like, what are, what are we, (laughs) are we just trying to say that everything is as it should be? Are we just trying to say that uh, everything just needs to be kind of like tweaked a little bit and then we'll be fine because I am, I have 
spent time and been in deep friendship for a long time with with people and with we all have experiences of things being really really wrong almost Mm -hmm. inexplicably terrible (laughs) and so I wanted to talk about these systems without using the language of brokenness all the time because that that, honestly that's another one that that's like quote-unquote triggering to me as like thinking of all these things as broken and anyway talking about sin in a communal sense felt really important and it felt it that was another one of my you know theology class learnings that feels really important to be talking about in the wider world that sin Mm -hmm. is something that we can be responsible for on a communal level on a societal level and so much of the mosaic laws are about how to organize a society and so much of what needs to be atoned for in these laws is the ways we've let each other down without meaning to Mm. um and so I think of sin as any place that our belonging in the complex web of interrelationality has been severed or twisted or torn. Mm. And I do think that ultimately we, that severing and also the repair does is rooted in our relationship to god as well and i also find this very hopeful i think when i first heard this it was like everything is so much worse than i ever thought (laughs) i'm so much worse i thought i had all these sins and now i have like exponentially more sins (laughs) but it also you know it opens up a way to repair in a way that when it's just like, well, things are bad around me and I don't understand it, this doesn't doesn't always give us a way forward. And the an indiv- a super individualistic idea of sin and spirituality and and what we're responsible for or have agency within uh, doesn't doesn't allow us to fully engage with kind of with reality and. Um, to work together to find some ways forward in in doing really creative things to start to patch up and repair all of these little tears and these you know giant sunderings as well. Mm-hmm. It it's funny that you you bring up sin and understanding sin that way because the thing is is that understanding of sin I think is a more like you realize that sin is way more powerful and pervasive than this individualistic understanding of sin. So the kind of sin that we grew up thinking about, you know, as much as it terrorized that like, oh, this one little thing that I do could send me to hell. Like as much as that was really traumatizing. And you think then that folks who believe in that kind of sin really think that everything is, you know, sinful or whatever, that actually they don't even really have a really pervasive or powerful understanding of sin. Sin is far more powerful and far more pervasive than we can imagine because it does exist in these 
these webs, these large webs of relationships. And so that, that actually leads to my next question really well, where one of those manifestations of sin is empire, right? And mm-hmm. so that gets to the second part of this book, not only your body, but also empire. Uh, can you talk about how then specifically empire, the sin of empire, warps our relationships with our bodies. You know, maybe you're thinking about the empire of the American health system and how that has warped and shaped your relationship with your body. But yeah, can you talk about how empire in general warps our relationship with our own bodies and with the bodies of others? What comes to mind, first of all, which I don't talk about a whole lot in the book, but is very present for me is uh, the empire of whiteness and the truth that in order to colonize other people and other lands than where you belong, (laughs) where you are born to violently colonize other, other nations and to invent, to invent race, to legitimize and to codify that colonization sort of in perpetuity necessarily disconnects you from your humanity. And the way that whiteness has come to be defined and enforced over centuries is very rather explicitly divorces white people and people who are allowed to be accepted by whiteness from our bodies. In the at the same time that it is taking lives and killing bodies and injuring bodies and ripping families apart, it's doing the, the same thing on the other side to the colonizer. And lots of lots and lots of people have talked and written about this who know more and are more eloquent than me. But Empire is about control, right? And it's about control of bodies, ultimately. Mm-hmm. It's about where where human bodies can and cannot go, what which human bodies are for what purposes. And uh, we sometimes we get into like sociological theory and forget that we are talking about human bodies. So in this project of trying to control bodies, empire has to do everything it can to divorce us from the power of our bodies. Uh, Because there is also, like there is so much sin in being, becoming separated from our from our bodies, um, sin sort of perpetrated upon us and also upon ourselves. Then there is also the there's so much power in reintegrating with our bodies. They have so much wisdom. Mm. We have so much um, ability to heal and to strengthen and to um, process trauma and bring us together in our communities and. So empire has to do everything in its power to separate like both the oppressed from their bodies, the power of their bodies, and to keep the oppressor from splitting themselves apart at every moment of every day. And the body isn't, isn't just going to 
the body is wise and the body is part like who we are Mm -hmm. and the body is going to say speak up unless we are taught to disregard it to Mm -hmm. to turn it into its own like site of internal oppression uh wherever we are and that the hierarchies empire creates Mm -hmm. this episode of a people's theology is brought to you by united theological seminary of the twin cities Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. You've already kind of started to mention this a little bit when we were talking about sin and now empire, but you, you've talked about how the body heals and in that wholeness piece. And this is one of my favorite insights that you bring up in the middle of the book is this idea of healing from the inside out. I th- and that like that way of framing it, the inside out, I think is really, really insightful. Uh, one of the claims that I make in my thesis, and I did my thesis on embodiment uh, last year, is that nice. oppression doesn't just exist structurally but it, or personally. So it's not just that oppression exists when it comes to governmental policies or in terms of interpersonal relationships, but oppression mm-hmm. also exists within our bodies. Uh, and so I make the claim that in my book, or my not my book, my thesis, that if we are to liberate the world from oppression, it just can't be in terms of creating liberating structural systems and creating liber- liberating interpersonal relationships, but it also means that we have to create a way of liberating our bodies from this oppression as well. So can you talk about the importance of that embodied work when it comes to liberation work because it's going from the inside out? Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, the importance of embodied work is is really big. <laughs> big question we think of we we get taught to think of healing as like band-aids heal you surgeries heal you Mm. medications heal you but actually your body heals itself and these you know often we need these external things to facilitate that but it's like thing is so miraculous and so mundane we forget um, that our bodies heal uh, from the inside out. So when we're talking about justice and liberation, we want to take that same approach of like legislation fixes things um, or changing our language makes us 
changes our minds, right? And those things are true. <laughs> and there's they're very incomplete without involving our physical selves and our day-to-day activities in ways that I think we're just, at least when I was in seminary, there was such a reaction against what people called charity or such a, such a fear that we would lose our sight of systemic issues Mm. and structural, the need for structural change that there was, it seemed like this fear of, of admitting that our individual physicality or a collective embodiment was not, was like anywhere near the top of a priority list. Mm -hmm. But actually what I have experienced is that when we allow our bodies into the picture, (laughs) um, when we acknowledge bodies in, in communal spaces, I think it's really important and really paradigm shifting when we allow things to move at at the pace of human bodies rather than the pace of like empire's definition of how things change and in certain terms of legislation and systems and rules and denominational statements and um when we are also mindful of the pace of of humanity and human bodies and emotions and it's sometimes it takes time and is very unruly and messy to bring everyone along we actually the structural things we're trying to do become so much more effective uh even if they look weird because we're not used to bringing bringing bodies along we're not only trying to get to some place that exists somewhere else, but we are experiencing what we are hoping for, often, first of all, within our individual bodies. And then also, when we can, when we get the opportunity to be in a room of people that are also willing to have this conversation and also willing to let uh, song and dance or uh, movement in general or people having access needs, people having regular physical needs for food and water, <laughs> people having needs for time and rest. Um, when we get to experience that collectively, again, we're not just working for something that's forever in the future, uh, as if as if we were building some sort of corporation that's, you know, never ending future goals. <laughs> we're embodying what we want to see occur in the world. Mm-hmm. That actually, I think, segues really nicely into my next question, because towards the end of the book, you reference uh, Nancy Iceland, who is the author of The Disabled God. And mm-hmm. I reference her as well in my thesis, and specifically in my eschatology section. I think her way of understanding ex- eschatology is incredible. And so she talks about eschatology as this like liberating eschaton it's not that that liberating eschaton is not one in which like every single body is made heal or is is healed and made whole mm-hmm. uh so like for example like she wouldn't describe a liberating eschaton as a place where somebody who is in a wheelchair or needs a wheelchair 
no longer needs a wheelchair. That is not yeah. the liberating eschaton that she describes. The liberating eschaton she describes is one in which we work towards creating a world where that person in a wheelchair is able to have equal access to everything that somebody who doesn't need a wheelchair has access to. That's mm-hmm. the kind of world, that's the kind of liberating eschaton she describes. And so one of the things that you bring up in the book that I think is really great is how both humans and God are needed in creating this liberating kind of eschaton. And so can you talk about the role that God plays in creating this liberation and the role that we play in creating this liberation and why we both need God and ourselves to do this work? Ooh, I think of God in a lot of ways, but uh, one of the most consistent is that I think of God as connecting and reconnecting us into these relationships that constitute who we are, but that are often severed by trauma or by empire or by any number of other, by sin, right? (laughs) Um, And so I think when you talk about changing our understanding of the eschaton, I think that's in a lot of ways, changing our understanding of what what wholeness is and what humanity is, right? Because we want to, if we, the non-disabled world wants people with disabilities to be independent and in terms of like never dependent mm-hmm. <laughs> and wants them to, wants us to be be more like non-disabled people, right? And mm-hmm. to operate in this way that white patriarchy and capitalism likes for every person to be a unit and to be treated as, you know, this, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? A discrete individual. Mm. And that's not actually who we are. That's, that doesn't right. even science. There's, again, so much science we could point to that says, that's a nonsensical way of thinking about what a human being is. Mm-hmm. So when we shift to understanding an eschaton where people remain, both that we understand disability in a different way as part of who we are and who we are made to be, and even how we are called to exist in the world as individuals, there is that individual aspect. And then there's also the aspect of maybe the what constitutes true humanity and what constitutes real flourishing is interdependence. Maybe it mm. is also to set things up for less like economic growth and, and a capitalist definition of prosperity that uh, is again, sort of nonsensical within mm-hmm. the systems that we actually live in and the planet earth, but rather a vision of prosperity where we all get to participate and we are all the better for our neighbor's participation, right? And so I think that God is always reconnecting us both within ourselves, to ourselves, um, to God, to God's um, care and love, and then also to each other and to our neighbor who we may not know as well, and to the earth, I'm pointing outside my window. (laughs) You can't see the earth that I'm looking at, but that's God's role. And then our role is to like live into the truth of that. Right. Mm -hmm. I do think sometimes we talk about doing justice as this complicated project outside of us. And 
it certainly requires some strategy and some cooperation and make a few project management like boards sometimes, but it also just requires us to live into the truth of our connectedness every day. Mm -hmm. Well, I, again, it's like, you know what my next questions are, because uh, <laughs> that segues really well into the role that community plays in liberating our embodiment. And I, I think it's towards the end of the book that you talk about community. So yeah, can you talk, maybe dive a little bit more, you're already starting to touch on it, but can you dive a little bit more into the role that community does play in liberating our embodiment? Yeah, I mean, we don't, we, I, we don't always think about it this way, but we don't actually have a way of relating to each other without our bodies. Like you and I are speaking mm -hmm. with our voices and we're looking at each other, look, looking at each other's bodies with our eyes and mm -hmm. um, our listeners are hearing us with their ears. And there's literally no way we have to be in any sort of contact without using our bodies. Mm -hmm. And I think we really forget that. We spend so much time thinking about our thinking. <laughs> we can't know each other. We can't call anything a community that doesn't account for bodies in some way. And that we there's also no way to liberate our own bodies in isolation. I, going back again to the the idea of what is a human and the idea or the idea that you could read enough books and do enough yoga like totally by yourself and then pretend that no one wrote those books or, you know, taught you how to do yoga or whatever it is that is your individual embodiment practice. Even that is creating a community of people you've learned from and people you're connected to in that sense. But... Well, I know my own sense of who my body is and where my body is in space and what my body is for has always grown the most in uh, in relationship with other bodies, whether that's, you know, sexually, whether that's um, in friendship and in dancing and or just in being observing and participating and hugging people that relate to their bodies in different ways. And then, of course, finally, there's the aspect we're talking about of just accessibility that I, at some point I cannot, I can talk about like a sort of spiritual or personal body liberation that is up to me. But for my body to truly belong in society and for my body, myself and my body to be able to fulfill all of my vocations in the world requires the people around me to mm -hmm. choose access. This question might be a little redundant at this point, but the tagline of my podcast is exploring, inspiring, and liberating theologies. So how do you hope my body and other crumbling empires inspires and liberates its readers? I want so much to sort of reclaim this word healing. Because I, I think some people with chronic illnesses or any number of other mental illnesses resist using the word healing at all uh, because we have so associated it with fixing, with changing people like from who they are to something else. And that's not what healing is. Um, 
And that's not what God promises us. And I, God, the Bible and theology talks about healing so much. I don't think even if it would be nice to just forget about it, uh, we can't. And so I am really, I, my biggest dream for this, the impact of this book is that we can reclaim healing as a, not just a project, but a vocation that is joyful and beautiful. And that can be so even if it is never ending as it will be for me as a person with chronic illness. It is not something we have to do to each other or to ourselves, but something that unfolds within us when we are allowed to live as we are called to live and as we are created to live. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that includes having picnics with friends, right? Exactly. It just came from a picnic with friends. And it was like really, truly, inestimably important to my physical health. This I have learned. Um, it's really astounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question, Lindsay. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Oh, they can find me on the internet. <laughs> My name is Lindsay Medford, L-Y and D-S-E-Y. And I'm kind of Lindsay Medford everywhere. So it's lindsaymedford.com, instagram.com slash lindsaymedford. And lindsaymedford.substack.com is where you can hear from me the most reliably. Perfect. And where where can people get the book if they want to get the book? <laughs> the book is anywhere you buy books. I'm sure you're a local independent bookstore might have to order it for you, um, but they can certainly do that. And uh, you can find all the links also at lindsaymedford.com slash book. Beautiful. Beautiful. Wonderful. Well, Lindsay, it's been just really a joy to chat a little bit more about the book. I think it's so great. Uh, again, as somebody who wrote my thesis about embodiment, anybody who's writing books right now about embodiment, I'm all over. So the fact that <laughs> you you wrote this book and it's just so great, there's, I think, a lot of parallels between kind of some of the claims that I make in my thesis and what you're talking about in this book, too. So it's just really cool uh, to see a lot of other people getting in this conversation about embodiment. So thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about the book. Thank you, Mason. This was great. If you would like to connect with Lindsay and her work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>